Yeah, I think that that's definitely one of the most fascinating things I've learned in the last few years is about is about the living theocracy we have in America, that is the state of Utah. When an apostle of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints asks you to do something, it is a great honor and you will do it. And of course he acquiesced and you know he took up his role. You know, I, I think generals cannot keep giving uh, inconsistent orders and backtracking on their statements and just uh, wish-watching all over. But when I think about people who can, it's either the prophet of the Mormon Church or actually Chairman Mao. And then finally, I go back to optimism, mostly through talking to um, the professor I took a course with, Neil Ferguson. I, I admire him tremendously, and he has affirmed how he is totally committed to the institution. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. I am really excited to bring you probably someone who you've never heard of before, Bohan Lowe, a recent graduate of Yale and a product manager at Lyft. The reason you might have never heard of him before is that he doesn't really have a public profile. I met him for the first time at UATX, and man, is he interesting. Well, you'll be able to hear for yourself in this episode. As always, if you like the show, subscribe, and share it with a friend. That's the best thing you can do uh, to help us out right now. This is a bit of a shorter episode than usual, but of course, it's the premiere. So there are two other episodes, one with Nils Gilman and one with Curtis Yarvin for you to listen to. I hope you enjoy both of those as well. Without further ado, here's Bohan Lowe. Harry, we can just cut, you can get, cut it, edit it, don't publish it. Even if you don't publish it, I don't mind. No, it's however you want to do it. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I, I just started rolling, but, like, okay. yeah, it doesn't doesn't really matter. I'm going to cut, like, some some prefix off, right? An arbitrary prefix. Sure. See, maybe just for the lulls, I don't. And this is just all left in. Sure. That's okay with me. I have no reputation or stakes yet to lose, so. Yet. 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 Who knows? Maybe those will launch me into fame and stardom in some way, right? Yeah. Yes. That's where all of the stars begin. That's where stars are born. The, uh, from the New World podcast. Yes. Okay, so what are you into? Um, I would say that I'm quite interested in religion, uh, both in terms of theology, where you look at their doctrine and beliefs from the inside, but also um, externally in terms of religious studies, where you study the sociology, the history, and the structures of religions, uh, where they came from, uh, how are they formed, uh, and where they're going in the future. Um, and I think, you know, religion is involved in many fields. So when I say I'm an interest in religion, I'm also interested in the ways that religion comes through in history and politics and philosophy. Yeah, I think tearing those things apart, are, they're not really, it's not really doable, right? It's, they're, they're really inseparable. So when you think about religion, what are your kind of first questions that you ask yourself? Yeah, I think there is maybe no consensus definition of religion, and also the definitions might vary based on the field. Religious studies might view it differently than history or sociology. Um, but I think what's common to religions is that they are systems of belief that organize people, uh, give people a purpose, and also provide people with uh, morality and maybe some North Star in their lives in terms of purpose and morality. Um, so 
those are the questions I would look for when I learn about a new religion. Like, what do they teach people about the purpose of their lives? What is their ethics? And then what are the social structures they use to organize people or sometimes coerce them? And by that definition, um, I'm also interested in things that are not traditionally seen as religions, but are studies religions by some religious study scholars, uh, such as communism or fascism, these political religions, or even the civil religion of America or France, you know, maybe uh, liberty and freedom as religion. Mm, right. So I think a lot of things fall into that category. And I mean, you can draw a lot of value from comparing them. So what kind of uh, religions do you study? What kind of what kind of places do you end up? So I first became interested in religion uh, because I first got into Middle Eastern politics when I was in uh, late middle school. I had a teacher. I was born and raised in Shanghai, and I had this teacher who taught English in Shanghai, but back in America, he was an anthropology professor, and he studied Islam. Uh, and he also studied counterterrorism in Israel after 9-11. So he got me interested in uh, the geopolitical questions, you know, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the relations with the other states around, like Syria, Iran, Saudi Arabia. Then after getting into the geopolitics of the Middle East, I slowly uh, got more into the religion also. So I would say the religions I spend the most time studying are the monotheistic Middle Eastern Abrahamic religion, so Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Uh, but I'm definitely interested in Eastern ones, also in, in the cults that come out of the Eastern and Western traditions. So, so let's just start with those three. Uh, let's, let's start with Christianity. What is, uh, what do they teach? What is the kind of ethics, and how do they, how do they organize? Yeah. Um, in terms of. I mean, we are, we, we, especially, you know, being here in America, that's where the podcast is taking place. You know, we're definitely in a civilization founded upon Judeo-Christian values. So I think some of what they teach is so pervasive in our lives that it's sometimes hard to even figure out what they're teaching because they would just take it for granted. You know, we live in this liberal world order that started in a Christian society. Um, if we were to actually go to, uh, Christian dogma, I think what they believe is that you know, there is this monotheistic God that created uh, humans and that humans are fallen creatures who have sinned and strayed away from God. And But then this God, um, through his uh, grace and love for humans, has made a great sacrifice of his only son, Jesus, and to atone for the sins of humans. Um, and so because of that, we are saved. And I think... That is what I can say about Christian doctrine that I think is maybe a bit more universal because if you go into different sects, they believe very different things in the specifics about like, you know, whether we have agency, like the Calvinists believe we're predestined, right? And other groups right. don't. So I think that's a more, probably, probably a common set of things to believe. And then in terms of their ethics, um, I think they're built upon like the Jewish ethics that are codified in the Ten Commandments. A lot of things, you know, in Western society we take for granted. Um, some people think Jesus's message can be summarized as the golden rule, um, mm. you know, do unto others what you would want to be done to yourself in a sense. So maybe that's like a summary of their ethics. Yeah. And what about, uh, what about Islam? What makes Islam different? Yeah, I think, uh, Islam is different both in terms of its teachings and how it was founded. Um, Judaism and Christianity their founders were not political military leaders. So Jesus, you know, did not rule a state, nor did he have an army. Um, the founders of Judaism 
I think most a lot of people would say is Moses, maybe. And he led a people. He led them out of Egypt through 40 years in the desert. But he also was not a conquering militant leader and did not create a real political structure uh, like Muhammad did. So Muhammad is very different than um, And you see how his message in the Quran changes based on the power he gains in his life. So when he was uh, just starting off, when he re- received the revelation from Angel Gabriel, and that was in um, Mecca, he was much more about tolerance and peace. And that's what a lot of Muslims point to, those verses in the Quran where they say Islam is religion of peace. But later, as he is persecuted and kicked out of Mecca to go to Medina, and he gains a following, he gains military might, and he starts uh, persecuting and conquering other peoples, his message turns a lot more violent and less tolerant. So you see his rise mirrored in the shifted tone of the Quran. And I think that's what makes him very different than Muhammad was a political military leader in addition to a religious one. Um, that's why Islam is not just a religion, but it's also a political ideology. That's very interesting because, of course, we see this kind of manifesting in, in the world we live in, right? There's, there, there's one of these three religions that have many more theocracies in the world than the others. Sure. Yeah. Or in the current period, yes. You know, Christianity had its heyday of theocracies. Uh, mm-hmm. Medieval Europe was, you know, heavily subjugated and oppressed by a suffocating Catholic ideology, but they've gone out of that period. And I think the difference with Islam is there hasn't been reform of mainstream Islam. There's some moderate branches that are trying to reform. But in the current world, yes, Islam is more, uh, I guess, conducive to theocracies. Is this anything about how those religions are uh, are practiced right now? Or is that is, is that just an artifact of history? Um, in, in terms of why Christianity is designed yeah. a lot of theocracies now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think the Christianity's practice now, and the Judaism that's practiced now, is different from the early days. Uh, you know, in when people try to point to how the monotheistic religions are similar, especially when they try to defend uh, Islam's violence, they say, oh, in the Jewish Old Testament, so sorry, the Jewish Bible, which is the the Christian Old Testament, there's a lot of violence too. And the laws of Leviticus that Orthodox Jews would follow also have violent passages there where they smash babies' heads on rocks. But you don't see modern-day Jews, even of the ultra-Orthodox, they don't practice those laws anymore. They found ways to interpret them in a way where they're not beholden to, you know, the, those violent uh, acts. Um, and I think, you know, it's like these series of reform and also how liberalism grew in Europe and, you know, after the Enlightenment became the dominant force that people were able to reconcile Christianity uh, in a way where uh, it was not as violent and coercive as it was during the Crusading Middle Ages. Whereas in Islam, um, there actually might have been periods where I think in certain societies, Islam was not always very political or violent. Like Islam has been in China for thousands. Uh, over a thousand years. It's lived in Southeast Asia for over a thousand years, and they were not as radicalized as they are now, maybe. So I think Islam may have gone through periods of more, um, being more moderate. Um, but right now, a lot of the strings are radicalized through some people think maybe because the Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia that got exported, uh, or potentially, you know, uh, post colonial world order that is like carving up the Middle East in a, in a way that's not. Uh, native to how it should have been carved. Um, so I think that the main difference is just that Christianity and Judaism went through reform, whereas like mainstream political Islam now is has not gone through those deep reforms that are lasting. And a lot of the movements are trying to harken back to 
you know, the good old days when Muhammad was ruling, and they're trying to bring back the rule. Right. But I think that many Christians would profess to saying that they also want to bring back the good old days. They want more influence. They want more dominance. And that simply is not manifesting, right, even if they're a majority in uh, many countries. Uh, is, there a, is there a reason for that? Can they just not kind of get that muscle? Is, is there like something about the political systems that just make it harder for, for them to kind of regain power? Or like, what is, what is happening here? Yeah, I think maybe uh, the Christians that want to bring back the good old days, the ones I could think of are maybe c- Catholic integralists which are definitely much fewer in number than the number of Muslims in the world that are trying to bring back, you know, go back to a golden age, such as basically all the Salafi Islamist movements, where a lot of most of the fundamentalist Muslim movements, they all want to go back to a golden age. Uh, Christians is definitely one is a small minority. And right. if you think about the Catholic integralists, the period they're going back to is maybe like the Middle Ages, you know, when the Catholic Church reigned supreme, not to the original times of the founding text, not to the times of the Bible, um, I don't think most people ask to go to the times of Jesus. Um, and so I think that has less force um, than the Muslim calling, that the Muslims have a stronger claim that the golden age they're going to is the original and untainted, uncorrupted version, whereas the Christians are calling for one that came after the time of Jesus and the original disciples. So I think maybe the force of their claims are a little bit less persuasive because they're calling going back to a less, not as original time as what the Muslims are calling for. Right. There's a, there's a situation here where the locus of power and the locus of, I think, morality is aligned, right? So for Christians, the locus of morality uh, was uh, most likely, right? I, I'm not an expert, but most likely when Christ died on the cross. And that's, uh, that's the, kind of the opposite of a, of a position of, kind of practical power, right? Of sure. material power. Uh, but this is, this is quite a different time. And for Judaism, it might be something uh, more in the middle. They did have a kind of... Uh, dominant uh, kingdom of God, right, under David, uh, and they're, uh, I'm not sure if they're, there's a kind of movement to return to that either, but there's there's not this kind of alignment of a moral and political center, right? Yeah, I think you're right, uh, in that th- these kind of like high points of the Jewish and Christian civilizations you mentioned are not times that people are always trying to go back to. Uh, whereas the high point of the Islamic religion is some point they kind of go back to, like literally the rule of law and the societies they had under Muhammad. What about what about uh, these kind of political religions, right? Like, what about communism? Do they have a s- similar kind of uh, almost kind of like eschatology? It's not quite the same, but like a kind of a kind of um, ideal state that they're that they're kind of hearkening to. Yeah, communism seems to have an ideal state, right? Which is mm. this like worker's paradise where there are no hierarchies and everyone's equal and everyone is, you know, distributed resources in accordance to their needs and things like that. So th- there, this is this ideal version. Yeah. And the kind of ethics that stem from that is... So, I don't know, because what's interesting about communism is that it's more in the future, right? It's this kind of idea that, oh, it's going to happen. Next time we try it, it's going to happen this time, right? Right, guys? Um, I guess you could say that in, in some ways, the kind of afterlife is like this as well. But that's... I don't know. It doesn't seem like a strong political force, at least in modern Christianity, or really uh, 
I don't know about Islam, maybe it's a stronger force in Islam, but it doesn't seem like uh, this kind of religious uh, destination is, is a very powerful motivator, uh, at least in the present. But for these political ideologies, that seems like it's very strange because many of them don't believe in this kind of afterlife, right? Uh, right. But it seems like a very powerful m- motivator. Mm, you, can you explain a bit more clearly which which is the powerful motivator you're talking about? Uh, the, the motivator that is that eventually you will have this kind of world that you will uh, impose or that you will eventually get to, that you will contribute to building. You're building the paradise that you're... Um, restoring, or in the case of communism, building for the first time this kind of uh, ideal. You're taking your ideals sure. and they're manifesting them on uh, on either others or at least for yourself. But uh, I think that you, when you don't have this kind of ideal, you get a you get a religion that is less interested in power. That's the kind of proposition here. Yeah, it seems to be that you're right. Like, um, I don't want to speak to like religious throughout all the ages, but if you just look at right now, it seems like even fundamentalist Christians, uh, I wouldn't say they're trying to build God's kingdom on this earth as much as uh, maybe the communists were trying to create their workers' paradise in their lifetimes, you know, in, in the human lifespan. I think religions, um, Judaism is a bit different. Judaism is less clear about the afterlife and has less clear rewards of what the afterlife means. But in Christianity, Islam, and especially Islam, there's a lot of what people are working for is reward in the life to come, not in this world. Okay. And, you know, Muslims who do try to create uh, an Islamic order on this earth, uh, I wouldn't say that's the end goal. The end goal is that if they do the moral thing on this earth, they will be rewarded in the afterlife. Uh, you know, they're still working for the eternal rewards and stuff um, that come in the future. I think, yeah, communism is, I believe, very much has a lot of signs of religion, but they are different uh in the sense yeah they are i guess inherently atheists they don't believe in the afterlife and you're working for things in this world right so something that has always kind of danced around my head that i've really not really understood about uh about religion as a kind of motivating force is how it forms basically not quite hierarchies but how it forms and structure right how it forms uh, a situation where you have say a bunch of people who are willing to go to war who are willing to uh, take an action who are willing to take some kind of collective move and the same is true for i think a lot of these uh, near things right so let's actually just draw this out let's actually draw this out how does how does kind of religious will turn into political power? How does that happen throughout history? Yeah, I think probably the the simplest reward you can give people and heavily motivate them is, you know, rewards in the afterlife. And they are very persuasive, right? Because I think um, the existential despair humans realize, uh, humans face when they realize they're about to die one day is like a very innate, uh, uh, innate fear built into our biology. Uh, there's that theory, I think, called terror management theory in psychology, right? That nearly all our fears are, at the end, the fear of death. So I think religions have provided an answer uh, to what happens after death and give you solace uh, that this limited span, lifespan you have is finite, but the rewards in the afterlife are infinite and your life will be infinite. That is such a powerful reward. People are willing to do whatever it takes uh, to ensure they get that reward and uh, including dying in this finite life because this life is, you know, infinitesimally small compared to the afterlife. 
So if you can promise people that, that's powerful. Um, and then I think that's like maybe a bit more cynical reading of, you know, that Marx would have of religion as opium the masses, you know, just like lying to them to get them motivated for this like fake reward. I think um, even in this world, you know, if you're part of a religious community, there are strong driving forces of this being your tradition, your culture, and this is like, uh, this is your way of life. You know, with your with your family involved, your friends involved, that I think are strong drivers for you to defend it. And if the morality you're raised in tells you that you must also spread this and spread this good news to other people, you will also be strongly motivated there. Um, yeah, maybe that answers it. But I guess these are just like the motivations people have for like working so hard for the religion, I guess. And some of them, I think, are more explicit in asking people to contribute to the religion. Like when I think about, um, you know, more Mormonism, Mormon missionaries are a phenomenon that a lot of people have encountered with. There's a lot of parodies and memes about them, like the Book of Mormon, <laughs> you know, which is actually mostly doctrinally correct uh, because the people who wrote South Park wrote the Book of Mormon. They grew up in Colorado where there are a lot of Mormons. Um, you know, it talks about the story of more missionaries and, you know, many, many groups have missionaries, but, uh, for Mormon, especially Mormon men, it is like nearly expected that they will all serve as a missionary. Uh, and there are strong, there are strong coercive forces in that, but also for them, you know, it's, it's the moral thing to do. It's honorable. Um, and I think, um, after they serve God in this capacity, um, I think their whole community looks upon them in delight, and that's a strong motivating force. Yeah, I can totally imagine that everything everything is leading up to this, right? There's all that there's all that kind of pressure, and maybe you get this you get this kind of now in the end of your career, but it's a completely different level, and it's like your existence. It is your your kind of afterlife. Your kind of uh, really the ordering of everything, right? But how does this, I don't know, what does, what does the, what does the Mormon church look like in terms of, uh, in terms of how it wields political power? Because I think it does. Right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's definitely one of the most fascinating things I've learned in the last few years is about, is about the living theocracy we have in America. That is the state of Utah. When people think about theocracy nowadays, they already think about the Islamic state when it was still in power or maybe Iran. Uh, Maybe there's other cases, but then, um, but here in America, they have a, a whole state that is a theocracy that is not talked a lot about as a theocracy from the outside, but many Mormons would also admit it. So, uh, I learned this through personal experiences when last summer I, you know, took a road trip from New York to San Francisco in order to visit a lot of different American religious communities. And of course I had to go to, uh, Utah because Mormonism is maybe the most successful homegrown American religion. There is numbers around 17 million followers world, worldwide. And it's actually mostly not in America. The biggest Mormon country is Brazil. The place with the highest percentage of Mormons is generally the Polynesian islands, like Hawaii, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga. Um, so when I went to Salt Lake City, um, I think first you see the success of Mormon rule because Salt Lake City and Utah are generally the, the, the state and the city with some of the lowest homeless rates, lowest crime rates. Uh, you know, very clean, very well run. Maybe that's why a lot of tech people uh, during their exodus during COVID, they left San Francisco, a lot of them to Salt Lake City, also great snowboarding. Um, but then um, I learned about the political rule because I met a rabbi there. His name is Rabbi Specter. He's the um, rabbi of congregation Kol Ami 
in Salt Lake City, which is the largest Jewish congregation in Utah, which is not saying a lot because there's very few Jews there. So it's a very low bar to me to become the largest congregation. Um, but because he leads the largest congregation, I think of him essentially as the chief rabbi of Utah, even though that's not an official title. So in his capacity as basically chief rabbi of Utah, he actually gets personal access to the prophet of the Mormon church and the governor of Utah, even though he leads a really tiny congregation by you know, Jewish standards in LA or New York. Uh, and also why he gets this audience, because the Mormons are Philo-Semites. They love the Jews. They view the Jews also as another, you know, ancient righteous people of the book. And they're very fond of them. And so the prophet of the Mormon church, which finally he leads a, fo- a group worldwide that I think numbers similar to the number of Jews worldwide. I think 17 million is close to the number of Jews worldwide. Uh, he wants to meet this other religious leader. And so when Rabbi Specter first moved to Utah, uh, Utah was one of the few states in America that did not have a hate crime bill. And he went to speak to the prophet about this, the prophet of the Mormon church, who um, I can't actually remember his name. He's like this 90-year-old man. His name is either Nielsen, something like that. He used to be a doctor. So he went to talk to the prophet and uh, told him that as a Jew, it's uh, quite important I, symbolically and you know as and legally for the state of Utah to pass this bill because the Jews are people that have known persecution. They have been the victim of many hate crimes um, and they would very much like to see this passed. And he went to talk to the prophet partially because the bill was not passed in the Utah Senate because the Mormon church and the prophet was blocking it, where they did not give it express approval and laws cannot pass in Utah without the approval of the Mormon church, basically. Um, I believe over 90% of the representatives and the government of Utah, and of course all the governors, they're Mormon. Um, And so the next day after the rabbi talked to the prophet about this issue, the rabbi said that the prophet received a revelation from God, uh, which the prophet of the Mormon church and the 12 apostles under him, so these are the 13 highest leaders in the Mormon hierarchy, they are all able to receive revelations from God. The prophet received a direct revelation from God that told him this bill must be passed, and then it was shortly after passed. Uh, in Utah. So this is an example of, I think, very clear theocracy. Truly, like, a revelation from God is what prompts a bill to be passed in the Utah legislature. And, I mean, this is this is awfully convenient, right? <laughs> it's awfully convenient that this is happening right after, right after this meeting. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Maybe it's just pure coincidence, you know, but, like, it's a bit too coincidental. Um, and, you know, there was, a, there was a, another example of now, this might be a little bit less theocratic in sense. It might mean a God ruling directly, but the maybe the political power the Mormon church has. Um, that I believe the rabbi was telling me a story of um, Salt Lake City hosted the, I believe, 2004 Winter Olympics, if, if I'm not mistaken. That's actually where Mitt Romney came to national prominence. That's where he started his political career. But I think the story goes that the predecessor to Mitt Romney in organizing the Winter Olympics... So Mitt Romney actually was called in because it was a disaster. It was a financial disaster in the <laughs> beginning. So he was... He made his name as like a fixer-upper and was able to get the budget under control. Uh, but I think his predecessor was also another very prominent Mormon businessman who was called in to manage the Olympic effort. Um, but at first, you know, the businessman, tried, the, it was an apostle who told the businessman that he needed to take this role. And the apostles are, there's 12 of them who are the 12, uh, basically the tier right below the prophet. Um, and... This businessman tried to decline. He said he was like very busy. And also he had no experience managing something like this. Maybe he worked in a different industry, totally different from managing events and things like that. He wanted to not take on this job. And then the apostle reminded him very sternly that, 
when an apostle of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints asks you to do something, it is a great honor and you will do it. And of course, he <laughs> acquiesced and, you know, he took on this role. So, you know, just the request from a Mormon church is something that a Mormon can't really turn down. Um, right, it's interesting because I think that in the present day, at least, you don't see this power, this kind of power very often anywhere, right? This kind of loyalty to either, you might say, cause or maybe you might say hierarchy here. Because, I mean, there aren't that many people who you could have where they have someone else, maybe someone who they don't even know that well personally, right? Who can just come and say, look, this is, a, this is an important role. We need you for this role. And to get that, to get that with a very high rate, even if it's contrary to their kind of, to their kind of material interest, right? Yeah. You're exactly right. I think of organizations where, okay, if someone gives you an order you follow, what's that? Like the military, for example, right? Mm-hmm. But I think there's still a limitation to that in the sense that, you know, I think generals cannot keep giving uh, inconsistent orders and backtracking on their statements and just uh, wish-washing all over. But when I think about people who can, it's either the prophet of the Mormon church or actually Chairman Mao, right? Hmm. Uh, interestingly, that these people, I wouldn't say the Mormon church is as much of as a personality call on one person as centralized as Chairman Mao's was. Um, but the faith is so strong in the Mormon church that they are able to issue a proclamation, which they claim is a revelation of God, that will can reverse one of the church's decisions by 180 degrees. And basically all the constituents worldwide will immediately overnight believe in the new version and they will not have issues of cognitive dissonance of like, you know, this, this new verdict does not match the previous ones. And I think examples were how, I think, I believe it was only in late seventies, maybe 1978, that black men were allowed into the priesthood of the Mormon church. Previously, there was a long history where, you know, there was discrimination, racism against black people. Black men were not allowed to serve the priesthood. And then the prophet at that time made the decision and Mormons immediately accepted it. There was no backlash. There was no pushback saying, oh, you know, we've had this long, how could that just suddenly be? And they just followed obediently. Or um, when uh, the church, Mormon church, finally disavowed um, polygamy in the 1890s in order to join the United States and join the Union. Um, you know, Mormons accepted it pretty readily. Although there, I might talk about it, there was a splinter group that split off 70 years later, like 1960s, that believed the church erred and was corrupted. But the majority were able to set such a, accept a loss and the prohibition of their previous way of life so readily. The only person I can think that can do that is like Chairman Mao, because during the Cultural Revolution, he would give just opposing verdicts all the time. And on one day you were on the right side of history and the other day you were a counter-revolution cast enemy and people had no issues with these uh, inconsistent claims. They would just immediately switch to the other side. I, th- I think there's very few leaders in the world that can give, have this power of giving uh, inconsistent, uh, you know, verdicts. Right. I think that there's kind of widespread belief in, I think, some circles that I interact with that basically like this double, this kind of double standard is like power itself, right? Basically, I mean, if you expand the idea of a standard, this is kind of obvious, right? Like, what is military power? It's that my army can can beat yours, and yours can't beat mine, right? Uh, if you think of when you think of political power, it's that I can I can remove someone from office, or um, I might not be, right? Or they can remove me from office, okay? And that's kind of like an order of power. And if you think of it in in this way, like it's it's a kind of it's a kind of strange form of power because it's 
not obvious that it works, right? You might, you might, if you stumble upon uh, the Mormon church as an organization, especially if you're more familiar with other religions in kind of in, in kind of Western liberalism, you might say like, okay, they can probably uh, say their kind of say their kind of doctrines, say their kind of uh, commandment, but will people really take that seriously if it goes against their interests? And uh, it turns out the answer is actually yes, right? Yes. Right. And you end up with this situation where that power can be compounded and it can actually be wielded. And I think that this is very important to the kind of survival of any minority faction, right? And the Mormons are a minority in the U.S. They're far from, uh, they're far from the kind of most popular, uh, even religion, but they have this kind of survival and control over, uh, at least this like localized territory, right? Yeah. Oh, and, and, and then they're global phenomenon. And they're, right. yes, they're a small group. They're definitely not a majority, but they're disproportionately influential and successful in many realms, like politics and, and finance. Um, really? Finance? Yeah. I mean, Romney, for example, you know, he uh, was the founder of Bank Capital, one of the largest private equity firms in the world. Um, Elon Musk's, uh, I believe, wealth manager, you know, who manages the fortune of the richest human on earth is, is also a Mormon. Um, they've also launched a lot of companies like JetBlue, Marriott Hotels, Mormon companies. Yeah. Wow, I really, I really do not know this. Are they, are they kind of like public about this or is it just a... Uh... I mean, I don't think it's a secret. I think a lot of people just don't care as much to know, you know, the religion of the founders or um, maybe they don't, maybe they don't view it as that big part of their identity that it matters. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean... This is the kind of big question that I've been turning over, right? We're we're here, we're here in uh, Dallas, um, not Austin, right. uh, and, and and we're here at the uh, at the University of Austin in Dallas. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is confusing. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, I like this. I, I I like the I like the chaos. But basically, um, I think what's been the kind of subtle undercurrent of our time here is is like the power of minority factions, right? And and we kind of made the analog to political ideologies here as well. But I think the ability to collect and basically aggregate power in these kind of upstart institutions or these kind of upstart uh, publications, ideologies, movements, whatever you want to call it, that's going to be the question of whether they fail or succeed. Um, and let me let me give a bit of justification for why I actually think this because I think this is a very big claim. What is what is the goal of like any kind of founding institution, right, or any kind of institution in general? It, it is to self persist. It is to be able to to take the take this institution right and move itself into the future uh, as far as possible. And we have some institutions that are quite quite good at that. Like Harvard's been around for a few hundred years. Um, the U.S. government has been around for a few hundred years, so on and so forth. And many political ideologies have been, I mean, in some form or another, um, mutating, growing, but still around in some kind of, some kind of strange form. And of course, this is almost tautological when you put it like this, right? That, that your political ideology, if it's, if it's not going to put itself into the future, it's going to, it's going to fail. But what is, what is the action that puts itself into the future? Well, at least for me, I think that uh, its ability to put itself in the future is to put itself 
than people who will wield or who will take actions on the future. And I think that when you have such a small organization, when you can't have the kind of safety in numbers, when you can't have, say, like, just the sheer, the sheer kind of size of, say, um, the Catholic Church, U.S. government, um, all of these kind of major institutions that we, even like a Harvard, there's kind of like a, there's kind of like a size and a kind of network there. Uh, when you don't have that, when you don't have neither those roots or that kind of just advantage in numbers, what you need to do is you need to have basically high agency people who are acting in that way. And to circle back to the kind of religion points, that how you get this is that you have this, um, you have this ability to compel people in either emotional or in a kind of ideological uh, in an ideological way to kind of circle circle the wagons and to create a kind of um, to create a kind of political movement that is unwielding on certain terms. If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, but I'm trying to think about the claim here in the sense you're just saying um, small groups that form institutions that want to succeed to compete against the larger. Uh, institutions that are maybe more dominant with the majority, they just have to make sure that uh, the small group of people they have are highly motivated and maybe organized. But isn't that the same for large institutions to persist? They also make sure that people are motivated. And I, I think the difference is that larger institutions, they don't have to do that. They, they, it'll probably still help, right? But uh, I think small institutions, you kind of have nothing else, right? You, mm -hmm. have to have, you have to have a strong internal order because... Otherwise, you don't have anything else, right? When if you yeah. if you have the kind of scale um, such that if even if there's a lot of internal chaos, there's kind of infighting. The the built up the the accumulated like experiences or the accumulated procedures that are kind of if we think of it as a business sense generating wealth, or if we think of it as a kind of um, as a kind of uh, social effect, right? gaining converts. If those things are already so well established and so already widespread and so already kind of functioning on their own, then that institution doesn't need an in a strong internal order. It still might be good. And in fact, if it doesn't have a strong internal order, it might still decline. It might be victim to a kind of like parasitic ideology. We might talk about that at some point, but it doesn't need it. It, it can still persist for a long time. Whereas I think like... Sure. But yeah, I think um, for me though, this is... Maybe people self-evident in the sense like, okay, well, all large organizations are successful. Yeah, at some point, they were a small organization where people were highly motivated and competent. Yes. And, we only, and they only became large uh, because they survived. And the other ones that did not have these traits, they were just weeded out. They didn't make it. Um, and I, th I think it's just essentially true. If you're small and you don't have power yet, you're going to have to build that power by making sure your people are motivated and competent. But I think what's more interesting is what you talk about later is like, how do large institutions actually persist? Um, mm. That's, you know, a lot of what some Oberha studies. It's also what something I'm very interested in is just like, how do institutions persist? Because once they reach a scale, and like you said, the people are not as selected, they're not as motivated, systems start to become bureaucratic, maybe there's always decay. Um, small groups, there, there's no decay because there's nothing to decay even in the early stages. Um, but I think that's definitely much more interesting thing about like, how do... And oftentimes looking through out of religion, because religions are some of the longest persisting institutions we have, how do you make something last, like the Catholic Church, 1500 years? Or actually the two longest lasting institutions I know of 
um, that are international, sorry, not international, just longest lasting institutions are the Catholic Church and Japanese monarchy. Um, and I think maybe there's similarities between them, but probably studied separately. But, you know, Japan has, has had only one dynasty since their mythical founding. They have never changed dynasties ever, which is incredible. That's very interesting. But that's actually a very interesting case because they've, they've of course, changed their political role, right? They've completely changed their, their relationship with their people, right? Yes, they had periods where the emperor didn't real wield, uh, wield real power. It was the shogunate era where basically they were a figurehead, but their bloodline persisted. They were never killed off and people still, they had a role and they were respected and they were brought back at some point, uh, you know. Often, oftentimes, you know, rulers are not holding real power and they're just a mere figurehead. I don't think their position is that secure. It's quite precarious. But Japan has some, the people have enough respect for the institution of the monarchy that the monarchy has been kept for over 1,500 years and by their records, you know, like to mythical eras. Yeah. That seems, I'm not sure if that seems incredibly remarkable or just coincidence right like one of these monarchies they've got a lot of a while right um i i don't know if that's true i think if you just look at the average of the of a dynasty i think it's like maybe 300 years in world history right. three to 400 years i think the trend in the rule is that they they, sh they need to collapse um and japan is very special and i don't think it's just coincidence um like maybe it's coincidence that they made all the right decisions, but then there are like there are like some reasons why they persisted beyond just food. Yeah. Right. Well, I'll throw this at you and see if it makes sense or not. So one of my big things that I've been kind of pushing is that uh, the collapse of internal order is deeply related to whether hierarchies are explicit or implicit. Right. So an explicit hierarchy is kind of like a startup or even kind of like a semi-successful business where there's a thing that you want to do and your success, whether it's the company's success, whether it's uh, the employees, their evaluations, promotions, or hiring, right? That's based on doing the thing. That's based on doing the thing, explicitly talking about doing the thing, being unafraid of doing the thing and criticizing people. This is the kind of like um, open debate fact, but it's also a kind of willingness to push and a willingness to be kind of disagreeable. Uh, as well as a kind of focus and a lack of distraction on kind of pursuing other uh, other random things that might distract the company's that might distract the company's goals, uh, and that this shifts over time as you become a larger institution through either being unable to hire people who have that focus, having to hire basically like lower quality people, having um, a cycle that occurs where those lower quality people shift the culture, and so on and so forth, where um, another kind of my one-liners is that bureaucracy is the art of taking explicit competition and turning it into implicit competition, where these kind of political positionings take over, right? So it no longer matters, uh, no longer matters uh, completely um, how your judgment influences the ultimate product, the ultimate service, the ultimate thing, um, or in the in the case of religion, right, the ultimate kind of um, propagation of the religion. It matters your kind of ability to to essentially collect gossip, to um, trade favors, to uh, maneuver these kind of bureaucracies and these kind of uh, these kind of like as, as Samo puts it, these kind of like patronage pyramids, right? You want to uh, be the patron sure. of some people, you want to uh, be patronized by some people, 
and you want to do it in a way that allows you to kind of like increase those numbers. So the big test case here, of course, would be, would be, let's take the Catholic Church, let's take the Japanese royal family, and let's ask, right? How is, how is their internal order doing? How is their, how is their willingness to do the thing doing, right? Yeah. One thing I want to clarify was when you talked about when you're a small organization, you have an implicit hierarchy. When you're a large organization, you have an explicit hierarchy. Is that what you said? No, uh, exactly the opposite. So uh, when you have a small organization, you have a hierarchy that is where uh, the justification for that hierarchy is very obvious, right? So Oh, I see. Okay, sorry. I, yeah. I understand what you mean. Yeah, the hierarchy is you have a goal, and the hierarchy is based on your competency of you know your ability to accomplish Precisely. That. Yeah, but when you get large and you have the implicit things like politics, like you mentioned, like interpersonal schmoozing, maybe. Yeah, that kind of and, goes into it. I see. And you might have a goal, or you might have several goals, but the goals are actually kind of fake, right? Um, you, you have these these goals True. where we're going to optimize some kind of metric. Vanity but, metrics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But those metrics are uh, not necessarily... Uh, those metrics are both not necessarily actually productive to the entire thing, and even if they are productive to the entire thing, maybe it's something that the founder once put in place and the person who's running it now actually has no idea why uh, they're kind of justifying its existence. Interesting. So, yeah, is this your claim to um, this being the largest factor of organizational decay over time? Yes. Hmm. And then you were asking about the Japanese monarchy or the Catholic Church. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on the Japanese monarchy and actually compared to like, you know, a full professor, maybe an expert on the Catholic Church, but they, I, I mean, I'm just because these organizations have lasted this long, I'm not sure they're going to keep lasting. Japanese monarchy, I think, definitely is sometimes in dire straits, you know, as we see in the British market. The Catholic Church, now, do they have these issues of implicit hierarchy um, maybe I think they might be a little bit more shielded, uh, in the sense that the goal of religious organization and a lot of the knowledge they have is divinely sourced and, or they claim it's divinely sourced. And if it's divinely sourced, it means that something can be eternal and unchanging, um, in the sense that they can keep the same goal and they definitely very much try to keep a lot of consistent messaging and you know, showcase your infallibility uh, by keeping the same goal of messaging as they did from a thousand years ago. So I think if they can keep the goals uh, and prevent them from decaying, um, then I think that helps to prevent the organization from decaying as much as they've got business. Like a business basically, because the economy changes so fast, material quality changes so fast, technology changes so fast, the goals uh, and what they're producing are nearly never the same as the founding. But I think for something like the Catholic Church, they can very much do something very similar they try to uh, do something similar to the beginning days, including keeping the rituals and symbolism, of course, with the liturgy. But like, for example, like Google, what Google does now is already very different from what they did in the 90s. So I think it's much harder uh, when the goals and the purpose of organizing changes so much to maintain some kind of like con uh, continuation in the organization. What I'm really interested in is in the Reformation, right? Because I actually don't think there are that many situations i'm not sure if you disagree with this characterization but where uh where a kind of institution a long-lasting institution is put into dire straits um well into its lifetime mm -hmm. and then overcomes it changes itself and then continues far into the future um so first of all would you agree with that characterization of the reformation 
And if so, do you think that's, or, or why do you think that it happened? It was able to pull it off successfully. Yeah, I think the Reformation is interesting in the sense that, like you said, the Catholic Church at that time was already a very aged uh, organization, and it has this threat of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and I think you said the church made some changes, but I don't think they fundamentally changed. Um, you know, the, the, the clergy and the hierarchy was still preserved and like maybe some of the political power is broken um, because now they have a competitor. But I think the organization stayed relatively constant. I think what's most interesting about the situation is that the competitor or the, the original large institution was able to persist without destroying the alternative and the competitor. They learned to coexist. Mm. Like, I think generally, usually only one wins if you have a challenger. But in this case, yes, they fought, like, bloody wars, a hundred-year war. They have fought a lot of, you know, by modern standards, we look back as very stupid religious wars over small, you know, over a schism. Um, but they learned to coexist. And I think that's that's quite unique that, um, you know, they didn't have to destroy each other in for one to win out. Right. How did they do that? How did they not kill each other? And, it, it, you know, this, this is a lot of history that I, my hypothesis is that you know, literally there was a hundred year war, you know, a century of a conflict based on a religious schism and that each side could, it was like a war of attrition. People could not overwhelmingly uh, defeat the other. This was well, relatively balanced. Now, once I just defeat the other, you know, they were just one. So because it was drawn out, it was like very much like a stalemate over the long term. People eventually got tired of it, right? They didn't have the patience, both in terms of their own bloodshed, but also just like, you know, delaying the uh, the growth of the the economy and you know their culture and their lives so people eventually gave up on that and just forced themselves to uh, peace which you can correct me if I'm wrong I believe is the Treaty of Westphalia where people just yes. agreed that like okay we can agree that each person each country gets to have their own religion this is useless to keep fighting um, and I think it was only possible because they were relatively balanced in terms of power so it meant it kept being drawn out if once I was because they were trying to destroy each other, but they just couldn't destroy each other. I think that's that's mm. why they learned they had to coexist because they couldn't beat the other one. Yeah. Do you think that this kind of religious war is what birthed liberalism? I mean, I'll put it on the table. I think it did. Hmm. I think oppressive religious, uh, like a society oppressed by religion, definitely contributed to liberalism. Did the war contribute to liberalism? That I'm not exactly sure. I very much view liberalism as a reaction to like, the suffocating oppression of the Catholic yes. Church on ideas. But I don't, I don't know about the war specifically. Whether the war. Or just religious conflict in general. The fact that you have these, these kind of mixed, intermixed societies uh, that really were kind of escalating in this time period, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, um, that's something I would say I'm just not sure about in terms of the war and the conflict. But I think definitely... Uh, liberalism was birthed in Europe for like different reasons. Like one, it I, I think one of the tenets of liberalism is like the equality of humanity, right? That there's yes. something evident in the fact that all humans are equal, which is not evident throughout history. It's actually most humans did not believe throughout history; they would have thought it's ridiculous. People are clearly born different with different classes and abilities. So I think why did it? Uh, what are one of the conditions for this belief is the Judeo-Christian tradition that men, mm. people are created equal because we. One, we all have a soul. We have this intangible substance as equal. And two, we're all created in the image of God. That's like a very powerful justification for why we are equal despite our physical abilities, our intelligence, and our class being unequal by birth. Um, so I think that's one condition. It had to be born into the Christian world. But two, 
the Christian world also had to be oppressive enough that people wanted uh, like a liberal correction, liberal reaction to that. Um, if, a, if the world was like already very tolerant, um, which I'm not sure have it good examples. It seems like every pre-modern society was not very tolerant, but if it was like very tolerant, it might not have caused enough pressures for like liberalism to form as an ideology. Right. It's kind of institutionalization of liberal beliefs or of beliefs of essentially uh, individual freedoms and also egalitarianism. There's a kind of, um, there's a kind of script where this comes about, right? Where you have, in a way, this, these oppressive pressures, but you also have, strangely, axioms that can be aligned with it. So we're running out of time now, but I do want to get a bit of your insight on the kind of week that you just experienced, right? The kind of time you had here in, uh, in Dallas. Um, just what's your kind of predictions? Where does this go? Of the University of Austin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say that my view of the success of this institution has varied from optimism before coming in, pessimism once I started, and back to optimism towards the end of the program. Uh, I think the optimism was, and partially why I applied to this program and took time off for it to come here, because uh, I saw a need for an institution like this, where, though I never felt like I was necessarily like denounced and went through a struggle session with on in the cultural worlds on campus, I do understand that the climate is like far from ideal. And I think there are important ideas that are silenced on campus. Um, well, it's definitely prevalent enough that many people are getting together to found this whole institution and create Bernalos ever. So I was also optimistic about the institution because I thought there was a real need. And then I came here and then I think it was partially a lot of the logistical worries and some of the uh, maybe a little bit more intangible worries about the success of this organization in the sense of its mission, it wants to be like a full university um, and is competing with the other established universities. It's not just a summer program. It doesn't want to be just a conservative or right-wing university. So there are a lot of questions like, how does this upstart institution compete against, no, obviously no time soon, but even in long-term compete against places like Harvard or Yale? And how does it ensure that it doesn't get captured by the organizations and the groups that capture those institutions and doesn't just also descend into an ideological echo chamber of the right side, you know, because a lot of people who come here in the beginning are self-selecting. So these are a lot of questions I was skeptical about, like, would this really work? And then finally, I go back to optimism, mostly through talking to um, the professor I took a course with, Neil Ferguson, a very famous mm. historian from uh, used to be at Harvard, now at Stanford Hoover Institution. And I think he definitely made me more confident uh, on a few different factors. One is that after taking a course with him, I deeply respect this man. I, I admire him tremendously. And he has affirmed how he is totally committed to the institution. And the fact that he's not just here for a summer, he's not just here, you know, for uh, just to try it out and see how it goes for a bit. He's actually really committed and really wants this work out. And he even views, I believe, his future life work, not as a historian, but more as an institution builder, I think gives me good confidence that great people are working on this project. And the other part is that uh, he's told me the problem of censorship and silencing of ideas is so uh, dire on campus that there's an abundance of distinguished faculty who want to come here and teach. So uh, he said there's no issue finding faculty. And actually, in fact, they had to turn away some people because there's too much demand. And finally, the student side is that um, he thinks... How do we get top students to come here? Well, unfortunately, students have to be realistic and the things they care about are 
when they go to university are the prestige and the career options. Uh, how do you sell that as an upstart? Well, I think the career options are partially helped because the University of Austin is heavily, connect, heavily connected to a lot of titans in business, especially in tech, right? Yes. They will be able to help <laughs> that the students here uh, get great placement in jobs and have great careers. Also, in addition to their connection to think tanks, if you want to pursue policy or think tanks, they can also do that. And in terms of prestige, I think when you have the faculty that come, when you have uh, the early classes show that they can get good careers. Um, and finally, uh, the people that are associated with the program in terms of like donors, not joking is that, um, I don't know, I think this could be public information, is that there have been talks with Elon Musk, right? And he might be a controversial figure, but he carries huge weight in this world. And that if he is associated and donates to this program, I think that will immediately boost the prestige of this thing to, you know, exponential proportions from what it is now. So I think these factors mean that there are a lot of ways that this institution could really become viable and that competes with the existing structures. Right. And, and what can it learn from, what can it learn from these kind of religions from the start to where we are now? That's an interesting one. Um, now I'm not sure if they should definitely follow uh, all the religions that have been successful in persisting themselves because... I mean, yeah, know, we don't want this to be like a really Yeah, those school. definitely... In, like, for example, Mormonism in short, uh, enforces really strong ideological conformity. You know, I'm not sure... This is actually an organization that's expressly against those kind of ideas. Um, yeah, but like, what, what kind of takeaways can we learn knowing that we don't want to do exactly the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that goes to um, the question about how do you ensure this institution that values free speech actually has enough diverse perspectives that there is still free speech. Um, I think that's just a continuous balancing act, maybe similar to how freedoms and democracy are persisted. Uh, it requires eternal vigilance. I think uh, people would never should never think that we have reached a state where there is freedom of thought and that it is over. This is a milestone that's achieved. I think it's constant village vigilance and we'll definitely this institution will have to go through a lot of stress tests from what, what if students bring on, um, someone who is just a persona non grata by the left and the right, like a, like a true Nazi or a Ku Klux Klan member, right? I think these things will really test institution and how they handle them uh, will determine their success in their mission. Um, uh, I don't have necessarily a clear answer about the religion part. Yeah, yeah no worries. Um, thanks for coming on to the show. Bohan Lo. Thank you very much, Brian. It was a pleasure to be here. That was my conversation with Bohan Lowe. If you want more episodes like this, there's one right before with Nils Gilman, and right after with Curtis Yarvin, which I think anyone who's listened to this and enjoyed it will find equally interesting. If that's up your alley, then as I said up top, you can like, share, you can also let a friend know. This is one of the best things you can do, either in person or online. And of course, you can subscribe to get another great episode next week.